Well, thank you, choir and orchestra. And in the book of Mark today, chapter number two, if you will. Mark chapter two. And in the gospel of Mark, the second chapter, please. Okay, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word together? Mark chapter number 2 in your Bible, and follow me as I read this account beginning in verse number 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum. That was near where Jesus was raised. Capernaum is right near Nazareth in the Galilean area. So he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy, meaning, of course, that he's paralyzed, who was born of four. And when they could not come nigh to him for the press or the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doeth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only. And, and immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk? but that you may know that the Son of God, or the Son of Man, hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Thank you, and you may have your seat, please. <clears throat> Christianity today is, um, at least it professes to call itself the voice of evangelical Christianity in America. They've been publishing now for some 50, 60 years, and this month's edition carries an article from the Barna Research Group who does Christian polling. The article is entitled, as you see, Half of Millennial Christians Say It's Wrong to Evangelize. Now, I don't know what that does to you. You can read that over and not think about it. 47% or half of millennial Christians say it is wrong. It doesn't say they are not evangelizing. It's that they think that it is wrong to evangelize. Who does it mean by millennials? That's people who are born between 1981 and 1996. 
And they say it's wrong to share your faith with someone of a different faith or no faith in hopes that you can bring them to Christ. Now, what's an interesting statistic buried on down in the article there is that 96% of these same professing Christians believe that witnessing is a very, very important part of the Christian faith. They would tell you, yes, the Bible says we are to witness and we are to share our faith. However, these same people will then say, but I think it's wrong to do a verbal witness to anyone. Well, I began to think about that, and I studied the article. In fact, part of my information here is from the article. Why do they think like that? Why Why do we have a whole generation of people who profess to be Christians, and yet they say, half of them say, it is wrong to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. The implications of that, ladies and gentlemen, are absolutely astounding. They're tragic. I'm talking to a generation of people who were born between 81 and 96 who honestly believe that it's wrong, and therefore they are not going to ever witness to anybody as long as they believe that. Why is it that they think like that? That is so absolutely polar opposite from my thinking and the thinking of most of you. So why would they even begin to think in that manner? Well, for about 15 or 20 years now, I have been regularly preaching to you about postmodernism, a way of thinking that is being taught in virtually every university and college and in many high schools in the United States. People are terminally ill with postmodernism before they realize they even have it. It is an insidious way of thinking that's come into our culture and is rapidly becoming, in fact, the predominant view among the younger generation. It's astounding. It's overwhelming. 47% of a generation of Evangelical Christians say it's wrong to talk to people about Jesus Christ and attempt to lead them to the Savior. It's incredible to me. Well, part of postmodernism is that is something we call multiculturalism or pluralism. It says that all views are equal, all cultures are equal, all religions are equal. It stresses this hyper-equality to the point that you're not supposed to say anything to anybody that in any manner might somehow offend them. And so a whole generation now says that we can't talk to people about the Lord. It explains to me a lot of why of the difficulty that I'm facing right now as a pastor in getting even this church to witness. I wonder how many people are sitting here watching me right now, and you're in that generational uh, section, and you say, I don't care what he says, I'm not going to talk to people about the Lord. I wonder how deeply it's going into our church because you spend a lot more time out there in that postmodern culture than you do here at the church listening to me. 
In postmodern thinking, if someone disagrees with you, to a postmodernist, it means they are judging you. If you think that I disagree with you or you disagree with me, I'm judging you. And so you hear the young people particularly speak a lot about, oh, you're judging me. You shouldn't say that. If a preacher mentions homosexuality today, he's judging. If he calls sin distinctly by a name, he's judging, which puts us into a position that we can't say anything about anything that somebody might disagree with or we're judging them. In fact, it even goes further than that. Some people will call you a hater. It's not uncommon for me to get an email from somebody who says, you're a hater because I disagree on certain very key biblical issues. I base my opinion upon the Scripture. But there's a lot of people that listen to me and send me emails sometimes or contact me, and they base their thinking on what the culture is telling them. And so it's become wrong to criticize anyone's life choices or the way that they feel. In the article, the author went a little further, and he said this, our culture is rapidly losing its ability to think rationally. It is no longer guided by rational thinking. It is guided by emotion, and it's guided by feelings. Stop and think about that. We are losing our ability to think logically. We are guided by our emotions and by our feelings. The millennials in the survey said, then how do you propose that we reach people for Christ? And the answer was sort of like this. If we just live good enough lives, we can forego any type of verbal witness entirely. And people around us will come to know Jesus through our good actions and our selfless characters. But no matter what they say, no matter what the crowd says, ladies and gentlemen, it is contrary to what the Lord Jesus taught, and it's contrary to what the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, did in his own life. And that's why I use the story from Mark chapter 2. The story is simple. Jesus went back home to his home area to Capernaum, and four men heard about him being there, heard about his miracles, and they brought their friend to see Jesus. They, Jesus was in a house, it says in, here in verse 1 and 2. In fact, there were so many people that wanted to see Jesus, they packed the house out. Notice, if you will, it even says there, there was not any room, even so much around the door. You couldn't even open the door. The place was absolutely packed and jammed. You couldn't get another body into the house. And the four men have their friend here that they have brought thinking they would get him to Jesus. I want you to notice in verse number two, it tells me what Jesus preached. Oh, how we would love to have been able to hear the Lord Jesus preach, huh? And what was the subject of Jesus preaching? Well, he opened up his Bible. The Old Testament would have been all that he had. And the Lord Jesus Christ preached the Word. I want you to underline that in the Bible. He preached the Word unto them. That's what every preacher ought to be preaching, shouldn't he? That's why here I have you stand out of reverence to the Scripture. 
And I take a text and I try to preach that text to you because God never promised to bless a word that Bill Monroe said. But God promised he would honor his word that it would not return to him void. And thus, it is my mandate to preach the word of God every time I stand here. And so that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And these four men had a friend, and this friend really had a need, didn't he? What was his need? Well, number one, he's helpless. He's helpless. There are people here today that are helpless to save yourself. You may not realize it, but you are. You can't save yourself. Here's a man who is helpless. He cannot walk. Verse 4 says he's bedridden. He's laying on some sort of cot or gurney. And these four friends of his are bearing him. It says he's born of four. So I picture one man on each corner carrying their friend trying to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he helpless, but he's hopeless. He's hopeless too. Not a human being in the world at that point in time could do anything about paralysis. And so he can't walk. He is totally dependent upon someone else. Helpless and hopeless. The the description of every single person who is outside of Jesus Christ. We cannot say save ourselves. We cannot help ourselves. We have no hope that anybody else can do it for us either. And notice, if you will, at first they couldn't get him to Jesus. It says they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd. It calls him the press there in one place in verse number four. They could not come nigh to him for the press. People are so compacted around the Lord Jesus there, there's no hope of being able to carry a man on a stretcher and bring him up there and get the Lord Jesus Christ to healing. And so they can do nothing to help him either. And so one of them gets an idea. He is very creative in his ability to go and to uh, get people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be creative in our witnessing efforts, shouldn't we? Well, this old boy said, we're going to get him to Jesus. We don't care whether the crowd's there or not. By the way, often it's the crowd that keeps people from getting to Jesus, isn't it? If you wait on the crowd to get people to Jesus for their cooperation, you probably will never, you'll probably never succeed. The crowd is always standing between us and the Lord, the majority. And so they take the, one of them gets an idea. Let's lift him up on the roof. We'll get up there and have somebody hand us the ropes or whatever, and we will pull him up. And uh, the roofs in Israel at that time were made out of, t- uh, of tile or they were made out of wood branches. And so we'll quickly lift up the tile and the wood branches and the palms and so on that comprise the roof. And uh, we'll create a big hole and we will let our friend down by the ropes right down in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can see the picture. Jesus is teaching people all around him and suddenly... Here he looks up. There's a movement that his eyes catch. And here slowly, 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 down comes a cot. And a man is lying on the cot right in his face. Boy, that required some extraordinary effort. How much effort are we willing to go to to climb up on roofs to get people of the Lord Jesus Christ? How much extraordinary effort, inconvenience, 
discomfort am I willing to go through to get somebody to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to get them in His presence? Well, among other things, Jesus was impressed. You know why He was impressed? Because so much effort on their part indicated a great degree of faith on their part, didn't it? I mean, they really believed that Jesus not only could heal their friend, they believed that he would heal their friend. And so, with extraordinary effort, superhuman effort, they took their friend right into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with a very creative means of doing it. I want to say one thing, fortunate is the man who has four friends who want to get him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fortunate the man. Man, what a blessing. That for how fortunate he is that there are four people on the, in the world that care whether or not he ever comes to the Savior or not. So this is a blessed man. Well, let's look in verse 5 there and see what the priority of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to the man, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Hold on a minute. That's not why they brought him. They brought him because they had heard he could do a miracle. They wanted to see him walk out the door. And what does Jesus do? He surprises them. He doesn't mention the man's physical illness. What does he do? He says, I've seen your faith, and your sins are forgiven. What Jesus saw is that the greatest need that this man had, listen to me very, very carefully, the greatest need that Jesus saw was that this man needed his sins forgiven even more than he needed to walk again. Jesus, by this little example right here, is teaching us that the spiritual is more important than the physical, that the spiritual need outweighs the physical need. And so what does the Lord say to him? Your sins be forgiven you. Turn with me over to the eighth chapter here, if you will. Let me prove that point by the Scripture. Pardon me, the ninth chapter. My point is that the spiritual need of this man was greater than his physical need. And in Mark, or Mark chapter uh, Mark chapter 8, I said 9, didn't I? I'm all over the place here. Okay, in Mark chapter 8, and in verse number 36, in Mark chapter 8 and verse number 36, what shall it profit a man if he gets healed of his palsy and loses his soul? That's exactly what Jesus was saying here. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world, the world of health? the world of wealth, the world of friends. What does it profit a man if he gain everything in the world and he lose his soul? And then a probing question, verse 37, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Think about that. Young man, they have gone to extraordinary means to get you here, and you can't walk. Possibly you've never been able to walk. The Scripture doesn't say, but there's something you need better than the use of, you need greater than the use of your legs. You need your sins forgiven. You need your soul cleansed. Because if you live on this earth 
and you are palsied and you go to heaven, you'll be better off than if you live on this earth a hundred years and you can walk and jump and leap and have full use of your body, but you end up in hell for eternity, you have made the wrong choice. So Jesus taught us the superiority of the spiritual needs. You see, there are two types of needs that people have. Now listen carefully to me. The first is seen needs. If somebody walks into this building and uh, they are homeless, it's easy to see they have a need. If somebody gets sick, often somebody gets sick here and we call the medical team out, they minister to them, and often every few weeks it seems we call an ambulance comes, we call 9-11, they take them to the emergency room and treat them. Those are easy things to see when a person is stretched out on the floor or having some sort of uh, seizure or diabetic attack or something. It's not hard to see that need. Physical needs are easy to see. What's hard to see is spiritual needs. So a man or woman pull up out here in a beautiful car. They have on nice clothes. They come in. They sit right beside us on the pew. And they're dying spiritually. They're under the condemnation of a holy God because they have never dealt with the sin issue. It's not easy to see that. They're a nice person. They shake our hands. They're kind. They're good neighbors to somebody there are upstanding people in the community. An unseen spiritual need is easy to miss. Physical needs oftentimes are very, very obvious, and we miss them. Jesus here is saying, look, your spiritual need, young man, is more important than your physical wholeness. Go with me now to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and let's look again, and let's go down to verse number, oh, Mark chapter 9, verse 43, about there. And Jesus says, your soul is so important that if your hand offend you, cut it off. Better to go into life maimed without your hand than to go to hell where the fire is never quenched. And in verse 45, if your foot offends you, if you can't control it and it takes you places you ought to be going, cut it off. It's better to enter halt, crippled, maimed, handicapped into life than having two feet to go into hell. And in verse 47, if you can't control your eye, and if your eye offends you, pull it out. It's better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. What is he teaching here in principle? He is teaching the fact that the spiritual is infinitely more important than is the physical because eternity lasts forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. If they locked me in a dungeon for a hundred years and tortured me every day of it and I went to heaven, it'd be better than to miss heaven, would it not? 
and to live like a king down here. Jesus is saying the spiritual is the priority. Well, when he claimed, I want you to notice something else here. When they brought this man to the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened is it proved that his affliction was really a blessing to him. Had it not been for his affliction, nobody would have bothered to take him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes God even uses our physical problems, our pain, to get us to face the spiritual need that we have in our life. That's what happened in this case. And then, when Jesus forgave the man's sins, he was doing something, something else. He was saying to all the people in that house, I'm God. Because, you see, it's only God who can forgive people's sins. Now, the people standing there, those religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, here's the way they reason. Well, nobody can forgive sins but God, they say here. Well, Jesus didn't say it, but what he could have said is, and that's the point. That's the point. Who do you think I am? They were reasoning among themselves. They reasoned rightly in that sense. They were correct to say there's no one who can forgive sins but God. But they reasoned wrongly, on the other hand, in that they failed to recognize who the Lord Jesus Christ was. So, they made a serious mistake about the very nature of Jesus Christ. They didn't see him as God. They saw him as a prophet, almost a doer of magic from over in the adjoining province there. Listen to me, folks. You can be wrong about a lot of things in life, and it's not fatal. But you can't be wrong about Jesus Christ and it not be eternally fatal, eternally fatal. So we have Jesus showing us the priority of the spiritual over the physical. Then look in verse 11 and 12. And in the 11th and 12th verse, we see him after the forgiveness, we see him heal the man. I say unto you, arise and take up your bed and go your way into your house. And immediately the man arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that everybody there is amazed, and they glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I guess they hadn't. Instantaneous, complete physical healing after Jesus had forgiven the man of his sins. Well, look in verse 8 just before that. It says something else that's interesting. It says that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. Another evidence that he was God. The whole passage here is subtly, subtly teaching us that Jesus Christ is not only the Savior, but he's the Son of God. And so he can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And then he knows their thoughts. Only God can know the thoughts of a human being. And so in verse number 10, he says, that you may know who I am. He says to the man, take up your bed and walk. And so who can, who can heal paralysis by simply speaking a word other than Almighty God himself? The only one who could do that. And the message all through this passage is, Jesus Christ is our Savior, but Jesus Christ is Almighty God. 
And in, in verse 12, the impact to those who are watching that day. They were all amazed and they glorified God. Now, let me do a little application based on what I've preached. In this passage, we can't help but see the importance of getting people to Jesus. What an impact Jesus can make in their life. We've been doing testimonies about the impact that the Lord Jesus Christ can make in people's lives. We agree with the uh, millennials on this part of it that witnessing is a vital part of our Christian life. We're commanded to witness. It's not a suggestion by the Lord. He says, if you're going to follow me, then you will be a fisher of men. And he said, in essence, if you're not fishing, if you're not trying to win people to the Lord, you're really not following him very closely. You can be saved and not be a witness. Oh, yeah. Salvation is not by any work that you do. But you can't be an obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and never witness to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how that affects you because everybody in here has their own opinion. I know how it affects me. I know that when I go out into the public and I begin to see people that I always feel this sense of responsibility and urgency that I talk to them. In fact, I think it's the single most important duty of my life, more important than preaching a sermon. When I came to Florence, you've heard me say this 50 years ago, I had never really preached a sermon. But I had learned to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ through personally talking to them. And I remember hearing a preacher say one time before I came here, you know what? You don't have to be able to preach to build a church. If you can win people to Christ, you can build a church and not be able to preach. I said, that's me. And so when I came, the first message I'd ever stood behind a pulpit and preached was at the Florence Baptist Temple. But I didn't have any doubt that God would not use me because I knew that wherever you go in this world, the woods are full of lost people. Now, they're religious. They're all going to convince you they're already saved or they're going to try to. But to walk with the Lord and to really have an impact, His impact in their life of transforming them, uh-uh. There's plenty of people out there. The woods are full of them. I'm going to tell you that. And so when I meet people, I always think of that. Now, I don't always witness to them. Uh, to my shame, I mean, really, you can't. It's not even to my shame. There are times you can't witness to people. You know, if you're in the supermarket line and there are 20 people behind you, uh, they're going to probably want to shoot you if you start witnessing to somebody. Uh, you, you have to be sensitive to everybody around you. But I went yesterday to the drugstore, and as I, the, the young lady filled a prescription. Why well, I have one of those little infinity tracks in my pocket, and uh, she kind of slid the bag of stuff across the counter to me, and I slipped that one to her, and there were people behind me. I didn't have but a second, but I said to her, you've been very kind to me. I'd like for you to read this when you go home. Well, she picked it up, and she was reading, and there were people in line. She was urgent about that. I mean, she was interested, and she gave me a big smile and said, thank you, sir. Uh, we've, had, we've got the idea that everybody's hostile to the gospel. No, they're not. Uh, there, there are many people who are. But take every opportunity you can. That's what 
the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, would have us do. And the greatest need that people have in their life today, now hear me on this one. This is really important. The greatest need that people have is to see their need. You see, they don't think they need. They don't have a need. In America, we're so affluent. We've got good jobs. We've got food to eat. We've got clothing. We've got shelter. We don't sense that we have any urgent need. Oh, I'll get around to that someday. Maybe I'll get old and I'm about to pass away. I'll go to church and get religion again. But no, no, no. Use every single moment of your life and understand that the people out there, they haven't been preached to and taught like you have in this congregation. And their, their need is largely unfelt and their need is largely unsaved. They think they're okay. They think because they live a good life. And they're moral people, perhaps even, that they're okay. And they don't understand who Jesus was. They don't understand what Jesus did for them. They don't understand salvation is by grace. They don't understand a true definition of what faith is, what it means to really trust the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross work with your soul. Here's how we think. She's probably a Christian. She's the nicest person at work. Man, he's a good neighbor. They're probably Christians. They go to church. Until you begin to witness Begin to ask people and talk with them and engage them. Then you're going to find out once you do. So many of them, the majority of them are depending upon their good works. They're depending upon self-effort to get them to heaven. Junior Hill said something one time preaching here, and I wrote it in my Bible, and boys, I've never gotten over it. Here's what Junior said. Nobody is saved by being good. And nobody is lost by being bad. Boy, that's worth remembering. Nobody is lost, or nobody is saved by being good. And nobody is lost by being bad. Salvation is not determined by that. It's determined by the gospel. It's determined by what we believe and know about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's determined by, whether, by what we're trusting for our salvation. And I'm not giving a pass for people to live any way they want to live. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But how good would you have to be to be saved? Stop. Think about that with me. If salvation is by being living a good life, how good do you have to be? If, if, if you're lost by being bad, how bad do you have to be? You see, that's not what Christianity is about at all. The basis of salvation is the gospel. It's what Jesus did on that lonely hill on that cross. When he poured out his blood for Bill Monroe and for you 2,000 years ago. And that and that only is the basis of having my sins forgiven. Now, what efforts are you making, really, 
These men did, went to extraordinary means to lift a man up on a top of a house, tear up the roof, let the man down and pull him back up. May I ask you a, a question in love to encourage you? What efforts are you making to try to get people to Jesus? What efforts are you exerting to get people to the Lord Jesus Christ? I challenged you a few weeks ago, and I'm going to continue to challenge you. Go all out this year in our 50th year to bring people to church. Get them here. Get them in the worship service so they're going to have to listen to an invitation and a gospel message like you've heard this morning. Go all out and bring them here. Get them in here. Sit with them. Talk to them about what they heard afterward when you have an opportunity a day later or whenever. Let's give some extraordinary effort to reaching people this year and set a goal that maybe this is the year when you win somebody to the Lord. and You see them come forward into the church, get baptized, and become an active, growing Christian. Oh, that's the greatest thrill of all. I'm going to use an illustration here that so summarizes my message. I used it once before. Some, to some, many of you, the name Penn Gillette is a very uh, familiar name. Penn Gillette is a big guy, 6'6". Six, six. Penn Gillette is an illusionist. He practices magic tricks with a guy named Heller, Penn and Heller. And they own a theater like we have some over at Myrtle Beach where they entertain every night, only their theater's in Las Vegas. They've been on all the national television shows. It's something. Uh, and I've seen them. Boy, they are, they are good at what they do and fascinating. You say, how in the world did they do that? They're magicians, mu magicians. They're pros. The Pendulette is something else. He's a brilliant man. And Penn Jillette is an atheist, an avowed atheist, and in, an, a very articulate atheist, so much so that he wrote a book. And he, so he's a well-known author in addition and active in several other things. And there's a little thing you can click on the Internet. You can look it up if you want to Google his name. But just wait till you, we get through here, okay? But... You can Google his testimony. And here's the story that he told. He said, I was at the end of a show in Las Vegas. And a gentleman came up. He said he was about my age. He was about, he was a big man like I am, six, four, or five. And after the show, I signed autographs and I talked to people and uh, shake hands with them. And this man stood over the side and he waited until everybody was gone. And then he said, this man came up and said, I was here last night to see your show. I came back and he said he complimented me on it. It was very, very, very nice man. In fact, I'm reading now from the script, from the video. I was here last night. He complimented me and he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a Gideon New Testament and Psalm. The man said, I'm a businessman. I'm sane. I'm not crazy. 
He looked me right in the eye. I'm quoting from the video. I believe the man knew I was an atheist, but he was not defensive. He looked me right in the eye, kind, nice, sane. He looked me right in the eye. Three times it impressed him. The man looked him straight in the eye, handed him the testament, and said to him, I'm saying I'm not crazy, and I want you to have this. Then Penn Jillette speaks. I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, by proselytize, he means witness or share your faith or evangelize. And then he continues, quote, If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to heaven or hell or not, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward for you, well, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do I have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? This is an atheist. But if I believe what you Christians say you believe, and I think that people are in danger of an eternity without Christ, and because I'm a little bit socially awkward or embarrassed, I would just stay silent. He equates that to hating. Can you refute such logic? How do you refute the logic of that? He said, if I believed a truck was about to run over you and you didn't see it, there's a certain point I'd tackle you. I wouldn't worry about the impact of the tackle because I would save your life. And then he closes. This guy was really a good guy. He was kind, polite, sane, and he cared enough about me to give me a Bible. Our heads are bowed.